0: are listening to ThoughtCast, I'm Jenny Atiyah. What you're about to hear is the voice of the writer, painter, and teacher, Natalie Goldberg. Go get a pen
1: and paper, or go sit in front of your computer. Now, without stopping, for 15 minutes, tell me everything you know for sure
0: about your life go. These are the final words of Natalie Goldberg's CD on how to write memoir, and they capture the key to her craft, the inspiration and obligation to write. No criticism, no second guessing allowed. They also help explain her tremendous popularity. For her many followers, Natalie Goldberg's writing workshops can be a liberating, even life-saving event. We met at her home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Natalie Goldberg, welcome to ThoughtCast. Thank you so much. It's good to have you here. I'm glad I made it. Yes, I am too. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, why is there such a thirst, a need, for people to tap into this part of themselves, the part that can write? I think everybody has a need to express
1: themselves. We have language. It's the natural human attribute. and People sometimes are scared. They don't know how to get things out. They also sometimes don't know what they want to say or what they feel, and they sense that writing is a way to enter something. And I think that it's it's amazing when Writing Down the Bones came out, people
0: across the board. Let's got, say what that is. Writing Down the Bones oh, is writing, your best seller on how to write that yes. you've written and used in your workshops. It came out in 1986
1: and began a whole revolution in writing. And I think it broke a paradigm about writing. I said that writing could be a practice, just like running or tennis, and that you just have to do it. And it was a whole
0: new way of looking at it. Am I correct, Natalie, that you generally don't read your students' work? I don't read anybody's work. I just say, go.
1: Well, I give them a strong spine a trust and a confidence in their experience that they can write about it. I teach them how to write and then they can take it wherever they want to go. They can write novels, essays, letters to the editor. I teach you to trust your own mind. Really what I'm teaching we should have been taught in high school. But as you say, if you don't read it you don't know the value of it. They read aloud to each other. And and you re- and I, Yes, and I have students read aloud in class and I hear their work. I don't read their typed pages. That's not my job. You know, there's hundreds of schools out there criticizing and reading stuff. My job is to get you moving, to get you to understand the process of writing and to understand the movement of the mind. What are the implements of writing? Pen, paper, and the human mind. The more you understand it, the better you can use your
0: tools. Natalie, in your CD on writing memoir, you say that writing is a way to take care of finally things that are impossible to take care of. Is writing above all a really good form of
1: therapy? You know, people say that and you know, sometimes therapy has a bad rap. So it's not just therapy like, oh, you felt bad and you'll feel better. It's, much, it's deep, I don't mean to say, therapy can be deep too, but writing is its own thing. It's a relationship with yourself, with finding out what your mind is, and um, finding out sometimes what you really think, feel, and see, often we don't
0: know. What about for you, Natalie? Uh, what part of you is being filled, is being taken care of by your writing? Oh,
1: that's a wonderful question. I think in all my years no one has asked it. You know, I think it saves my life. I think that without it, I would not know who I am. And not only that, a lot of times I go through a day, I go through weeks. If I don't write, writing is a chance to live your life twice and get to digest it and feel it. and. Maybe if you're smart enough, you don't keep repeating the same dumb thing over and over again because you've been having a relationship with yourself and you're not frozen in some
0: continuous coil that just repeats suffering. Just to give a little background here, Natalie, you were born and raised on Long Island in New York, but at the height of the hippie movement, you moved to Taos, New Mexico, and I believe you lived in a commune there.
1: Yes, I lived. First I lived at the Lama Foundation, and then I moved into a commune in town. What yeah. was that like? Oh, it was wonderful. It was just wonderful. I wish they had them now, you know. It was a I love sharing and living as a community, and um it had some downfall, but mostly I feel wonderful about it. My life opened up. I had friends to play with and do things with and we had meals together, and I guess it was another kind of family. Later on in Taos,
0: you lived in an Earthship?
1: Yes, I lived in an Earthship, which I built. Um, It's a beer can entire house that had no backup heat. It was really a heat machine. It was totally solar, and for 18 years, I didn't
0: pay a heating bill. Isn't that remarkable? (laughs) Especially these days. Yes, it was quite good. Natalie, you're also well known as a practitioner of Zen Buddhism. In fact, you studied in Minnesota for 12 years with a Zen master. That's quite a commitment. Yes, it was with Katagiri Roshi. He was, I say, he was my
1: great writing teacher. I didn't ever study writing, but I studied Zen. And through Zen, I had a different vision of the way someone could write. And yeah, it was a great commitment, and I'm still a practitioner and it's the basis of all my work and really writing down the bones what I teach in there is backed by two thousand years of watching the mind it's not some just little creative idea and I think that's why it
0: works so well because it has a real root. You mentioned that your Zen practice informs your writing how? You know I always say that but now that you put me on the spot
1: I don't really know anything else. Uh, Writing practice is like another Zen practice. It's about meeting wild mind. It's about meeting your true mind. You know, we often live in second and third thoughts in what we think we should be doing, what we think we should be saying and feeling, rather than the gut, real way
0: we are. If you compare your work and another author, what do you see as the difference?
1: Well, I think that all writers know what I'm talking about because when you work with writing, you meet this anyway, but they might not have put words to it. I think the difference is maybe
0: I have more breath in my work. Can you give me an example? Uh, Is that phrasing or the tempo of your writing? maybe
1: that, but even more, I'm hoping that I'm closing the gap between what I write and hopefully that can heal me. Whereas often what we write scares us because we go into our deepest, most tender, vulnerable place in order to get good writing. And then we come back in the world and we're frightened. So we either have nervous breakdowns, we drink a lot. You know, we've heard about that with writers. And I'm hoping that instead, I use, if I use it as a practice that what I learn in writing also helps my life and I grow from it rather than living a dual life, you know, like Hemingway, he had to really open to write, and then he had to drink all the time to be able to handle you know what he'd written. It's almost you know that you couldn't balance the two. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, for some people, writing is dangerous and destructive and for other people it's healing? Well, I've, yeah, I've made
1: it as a practice so hopefully it's healing, yeah. And I think other writers would say that but it's also dangerous. It takes you to places that are really hard and you know the rest of the world isn't looking at this stuff and it's a lonely thing but you know what was so nice for me meeting Katagiri He knew about loneliness, and I could talk about it, and it was okay,
0: and I could work with it. Let's look at the word practice. What do you mean when you say, I practice writing, I practice Zen? You show
1: up, and you do it under all circumstances. It doesn't matter what you feel. You keep showing up, and you commit yourself. There were three things I learned from Katagiri Roshi. Continue under all circumstances, don't be tossed away. You know, you go to write and you think, oh, there's a sale on tuna fish, I'm not gonna go. Or, "No, I don't feel like doing it today. Or someone criticizes your writing. You still show up, that's what you've committed to. And the third thing I learned from him, make positive effort for the good. Picking up the pen and writing is positive effort. Even if you write about incest, rape, about incredible atrocities, racism. It's positive to put it down, to speak, to not be silenced. And so those things have kind of built a spine with me.
0: I remember in your writing, Long Quiet Highway, a book that was very much devoted to your relationship with Katagiri Roshi, that you say he at times asked you to choose between your writing and your Zen practice, yeah. do they compete?
1: He didn't ask me to choose, he said um, why do you come here all the time to the Zenda? why don't you make writing your practice? He said not to choose, he said someday you will choose whether to become a Zen priest or a writer. And um, at some point it was clear to me, it unfolded, I'd chosen writing. But now, if he was still alive, I would say, I didn't choose. They're both in me. I'm a Zen priest, but my practice is writing. And I think he would understand.
0: Hmm. Have you felt in the past that these two aspects of you were fighting for you, fighting over you?
1: Oh, that's a really good question.
0: Yeah, a lot of times I would think they weren't
1: fighting because I loved them both. but I often thought, oh, you're wasting your time writing, you could get enlightened instead. And now, as I've gotten older, I understand enlightenment is a temporary thing. We all have insights. I guess we were naive at the beginning when Zen came to America. We thought it would be like taking LSD, but forever. You'd get enlightened and you'd be on a trip forever. And life isn't like that. It's um, Always changing. There's no state you can hold on to forever.
0: Have you felt enlightened for times in your life? I felt my heart very open and
1: I felt um, extraordinary tenderness toward the world. And then sometimes you get scared of that and you close down. But you know, you hold it all as a practice. See, when it's a practice, there's no good or bad. And that's what I mean by writing. You write, not good or bad. You shut up and show up and keep writing.
0: You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm speaking with Natalie Goldberg, the author of many books, including the highly successful Writing Down the Bones, a book on writing, Banana Rose, a novel, and The Great Failure, her most recent book, published in 2004. Natalie, The Great Failure is a memoir about your disillusionment with both your father and your Zen teacher. I'd like to spend a bit of time on the book, so let's start with the title, The Great Failure. What does this mean? Yes, it was quite a trigger.
1: Um, When I went on book tour with it, America was very upset because we don't like failure. You know, we're so into success. But I think it's why I put the word failure right out there. Because it's so frightening for us. But you know, we're always running after success, but part of our running after success we're running away from failure. So what I did was take a step backwards right into failure and stood in the middle of betrayal, disappointment, all the things we fear. And actually, if you're not running from them and have a relationship with them, they become luminous and they become a real teaching. And so what happens, the failure becomes success. And I say in the book that the failure and success are the same thing. And the great failure is also the great success when we're not running, when we're not scared. And there's so much to learn from failure. Uh, when actually it was in Boston when I gave the, a reading in Boston, and people just fought me, and finally I said, "Okay, who here has never failed?" And no, I looked around, and no one raised their hand, and they looked around at each other, and I said, "So you see, you don't have to be so afraid of it. Don't fight it. See what you can learn from it. It can take you very
0: deep." Natalie, let's take a look at a passage in The Great Failure that I'm hoping you'll read for us. Here's the context. You've joined a group for abused women. And some of the comments by the women in the group remind you of your father.
1: Yes. Should I read it? The frizzy-haired woman with large glasses across from me described how she shaved her pubic hair when it first came out so no one could see she was maturing. My face fell. I did the same thing. My sister had seen the thin, downy first strands while we were in the bathroom, and she'd announced it at dinner. Then my father would try to walk in on me after a shower so he too could see. I didn't lock the door then either, and if I did, it was easy to pick the lock with an unbent paperclip. I learned early locks were useless. My puberty was filled with yelling at my father to shut the door, holding a pink towel in front of myself. I cut my pubic hair so my sister would shut her mouth, but I would not also cut off my breasts, the forming curve of my hips. My adolescence was an agony. I was the last girl in my seventh grade to get a bra, to wear nylons. I never wore jewelry, lipstick, eye shadow. I did not want to be noticed by the man in our house. Boy, I've never read that aloud. That was very dangerous. Yeah, um, it was true. And that was the other thing that America had trouble with, with the great failure, was that my father, I had no memory of my father actually touching me or as people wanted to hear that he raped me but i was constantly afraid there were no boundaries and i felt never i never felt safe and it was always a horror and um to be a young child and never feel safe around your father to feel constantly frightened and when i went to this um incest group the abuse group i realized that some of the girls had experienced you know what america thinks incest is but I felt the same things they felt. And it was really important that, and since the book has come out, I've gotten a lot of letters from women who said, I had the same feelings. And it was, I think, around the late 80s that uh, people really looked at it for a while. There was an opening where everybody was looking at it. And then they got frightened, and it closed down. But that gave me my chance, because I was always haunted by it.
0: But, Natalie, you really loved your father and you were very attached. I loved him. That's the other thing. This book is about
1: how do you love someone and also have been betrayed and disappointed by them? How do you hold that? Usually we go black or white. We either, they're bad or they're good. Or we go into denial in order to love them. Or we hate them. But I loved him And I also wanted to see the truth. I wanted to become whole. And I think it's part of what it means to grow up, is to understand that betrayal, disappointment are part of human life. Not to say, oh, it's okay, but to see clearly and to hold both.
0: In The Great Failure, you also write about your shock when you discover that your Zen teacher, Katagiri Roshi, your married Zen teacher, had slept with some of his female students. And then, over time, you remembered that he had been quite flirtatious with you as well. Yes, um,
1: but it was so out of the ken of what I imagined with him, and I had such a wonderful relationship with him and loved him, that... um, You know, I just never imagined it. And six years after he died, it came out. I mean, that's how secretive it was. And part of the suffering is that, first of all, of course I was disappointed, felt betrayed, but also it saved me in some way because it took him off the pedestal. And the book is also examining that. What is it about us, the Zen students, that we had to keep him on a pedestal? What is it about America that we want to idealize people? And also, what is it about him that he was lonely, isolated? He came from Japan where a monastery was all men. You know, so I wanted to examine the whole thing. I loved him, and I, wa- I wasn't going to leave him, or, but I wanted to understand. I wanted to look deeply. And uh, at the end of the book, in the epilogue, I say that um, when I die, I hope someone will look further than just saying, she was so great, she was such a great writer, and say, you know, she suffered, she was lonely, she made some big mistakes, and still I love her. Then I'll really feel seen and cared about. And that's what I was willing to do for Katagiri Roshi. I was gonna go to the mat for him. To write a book about someone takes tremendous energy. I'm not going to do that about Clinton. I did like Clinton, but I'm not going to write a book about it, you know, to look that deeply into it.
0: Speaking of your suffering, what you've gone through from an early age, in The Great Failure you write about betrayal by two men, and the betrayals are both sexual transgressions. Has this in any way influenced your sexual orientation? Um, I don't think so, actually. No, I don't
1: think so. Um, They were the two most important men in my life, Katagiri and um, my father. I've really looked at it very deeply. So I feel, I don't want to say free, because you're never, you always have to pay attention to those parts of you. But no, I don't think it actually has.
0: You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atiyah, and I'm speaking with Natalie Goldberg, the painter, writing teacher, and writer of Long Quiet Highway, Wild Mind, and Living Color, a writer paints her world. Natalie, I'm a big fan of your paintings and I actually own one, but you've created so much stuff in the time we have left we're not going to be able to talk about it all. So I'd like to focus. I'd like to get back to the great failure. Okay. For those joining us, The Great Failure is a memoir about, among other things, your deep disappointment with both your Zen teacher and your father, Ben Goldberg. Natalie, now that these two men are dead and their failings exposed, in your book, are you free, have you exercised them? I don't, you know,
1: I don't think we're ever free. You know, it's a myth that we think we're gonna write it all, vomit it up, and we're free. I think I'm more deeply in relation to both of them. And I love them both. You know, I love them, but I'm not a fool about them. I see who they are. And really, isn't that the greatest love, when you see who they really are
0: and also can love them? After your father died, you became much closer to your mother. Was he in some way blocking that?
1: Yeah, I th- he was blocking it, but a lot he was blocking it because I adored him and wasn't interested in my mother. But suddenly my father was gone and there was my mother, who I never had a relationship with. She didn't, um, she'd really disappeared. My father was a very big figure and I adored him. So I've had to work a lot on, in the last seven years in having a relationship with her. And, you know, finally, it's very sweet. It's sort of ordinary, but it'll never be the power up that I had with my father. My father was exciting. He was wild. You know, he lived his
0: life. My mother's was a 50th housewife. Your father was a vacuum cleaner salesman and then opened a bar. Yes, the You're- local
1: bar in a small town on Long Island. He's a pretty tough guy. Yeah, he was a very tough guy. Very dynamic though, too. Very- he had an original mind. And I hope I
0: capture that in The Great Failure. And in your paintings. Yeah, that's right. I have paintings of him too. I'm wondering if you're publishing The Great Failure, which has these revelations about your father and reminds the world of Katagiri Roshi's failings, you have in any way harmed yourself? Have you cut off anybody in your life because of these revelations, or have people left
1: you? Yes, it was very painful. I didn't expect it, but the Zen community really disappeared on me. It was a big silence, and it was heartbreaking because they were my deep community. But I didn't realize how institutional Zen had become in such a short time. And they want to keep a good face, and were very protective of Katagiri. So I lost the Zen community. and as far as my family, they were shook up for a minute, and they, didn't, they went right back into denial and were fine, you know. They, um, you know, surprisingly, though, they read this book. They never read anything I write, but suddenly they became literary, and they all read that book. My mother didn't. She's 90, and I said, you know, this book I didn't let her read. I just said, you know, Ma, you're not going to want to read this one. And um, since they don't go to bookstores a lot or anything, it was easy. She was in Florida to keep it away from her.
0: Would you have published it if your father were still
1: alive? Probably not, no. And, you know, I had never planned to publish this stuff about my father because uh, it was... He has his own dream of the way things were, and I'd worked it through for myself. But uh, in the paperback, I have an essay about how I wrote The Great Failure, and I just started to write, and it just started pouring out, and I knew that I was supposed to write it. I knew that I was going to write it.
0: In that essay at the back of the book, How I Wrote The Great Failure, you write that, quote, Unfortunately, I have a strong urge to be liked, to be accepted, end quote. Has this urge, this need, hurt your art? Um,
1: I didn't think so, but I saw how hard it was not to be liked. So it would be on a very deep, unconscious level, because I've made an effort to be straightforward and to say the truth. But you know, we all have unconscious things that run our life too. So, um, yeah, I'm sure we, I have, you have to work with all of who you
0: are to be a writer. In a recent article you wrote for the magazine Shambhala Sun, you write that you've found a new place for yourself, but you call it groundlessness. Yeah, because when you're always trying to get ground,
1: or solidify things, you know, I get achieving or, you know, build the right house. Something always gets pulled out from under you. And I think it's a a teaching in Buddhism that finally there's no final place to stand, that you get it forever. You know, we have an idea of closure or things like that, but we're going to die. So it's much better to live in the changing way the world is and not try to hold on as much.
0: Natalie, what are you working on now? What are you writing?
1: Uh, I just finished a new book. It'll be out February 08. It's called, actually it's called Old Friend from Far Away How to Write Memoir, but it's completely different than the tape by that. I didn't listen to it. I just wrote, I began from zero and just wrote a book. But as you know, none of my books about writing are just about writing. They're about practice and human life, and they're about everything. But you can learn to write by reading them. So that's going to be your 11th book. What about your 12th? Uh, I, it's percolating. It's pro- I'll probably start it pretty soon.
0: Natalie Goldberg, thank you very much for this interview. Thank you, this was just a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Me too. You've been listening to ThoughtCast. If you'd like to leave a comment, please visit our website at thoughtcast.org. You'll find some of Natalie's paintings there of herself, her father, and some of the places she cares about. I'm Jenny Atia. Thanks for joining us.